Welcome to Words of Grace, radio ministry of Elder Ben Winslet, pastor of the Flint River Primitive Baptist Church near Huntsville, Alabama. We invite you to stay tuned to today's broadcast. Our broadcast today is entitled Being Unequally Yoked. First of all, thank you for tuning in to Words of Grace. Having you in our listening audience as often as you do listen is a great blessing, and I treasure that. I'm especially thankful for every single interaction that I receive from our radio listeners. Never think for a moment that I tire from hearing from you. Quite the contrary, radio is such a one-way form of communication that the only way I know you're out there is if you contact me. There are several ways that you can do so on our church website, flintriverpbc.org. You can find out how to write us a letter via the U.S. Postal Service. You can find an email address at which to contact me. You can find our social media information, and you can even find out how to subscribe to our podcast. There is an archive of recent radio broadcasts, and there is a link to the YouTube channel. You can always tune in live each Sunday morning at around 11 o'clock Central Time for our live stream. And again, all of that information is available at flintriverpbc.org. I'd invite you to go there and take a moment to write and let me know that you've been listening. I have had a passage from 2 Corinthians chapter 6 in mind for a couple of weeks now that I want to share with you on today's broadcast. Now, if you follow along with our preaching here at Flint River, you know that we've been conducting a study of 2 Corinthians since mid-fall. It's been a great study, and there have really been some edifying passages that we've considered together in this study. Some of our favorite passages on doctrinal truths, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, for instance, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. That is a beloved passage. What a wonderful passage is that. My favorite verse in the Bible, 2 Corinthians 5, 21, For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. we got to consider that passage as well. 2 Corinthians is just absolutely full of wonderful, edifying statements. We've explored passages that speak about the reception of the gospel and how we are the savor of life unto the living, and we are the savor of death unto the dead, those who are yet in their sins. We've considered the struggles of the ministry the afflictions that Paul had experienced. There are so many various topics that we've considered in this study together. And soon at Flint River in our sermons, we will approach unto 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 through 18. And that is the passage that I want to speak to you about today. Let's read that passage together. Paul writes to the Corinthians, Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness, and what communion hath light with darkness? And what concord hath Christ with Belial? Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel, or an unbeliever, we might say? And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God, as God hath said, 
I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you, and will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Almighty. First of all, in introduction, these to the point, perhaps alarming or even offensive statements, are important for us to realize and to put into practice in our lives. We need to know this information. I have to give you a little bit of a disclaimer or a warning. The passages that we consider today sometimes are used by ministers in such a way that the congregation is discouraged or perhaps overwhelmed. Maybe I could say this another way. There are times that we as preachers will preach these passages in such a way as to be excessively negative or overbearing. I don't want to do that today, but I want you to understand that what you just read, what I read for you in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, is very important. It's something that we need to understand. It's something that we need to know. We need this warning. This is a warning. This is a command of God, but it's also a warning that God would have us to know, to be aware of, a commandment that God would have us to be conscious of, to prevent us from experiencing much hardship in the world, to save us from heartache in the world, to prevent terrible negative things that we could experience in our personal lives. When God puts the warning signs in His Word, that's not to be overbearing or excessive or discouraging or to lecture or nag, it's in the same vein as when someone puts a beware of dog sign in their yard, or maybe a road company puts a warning that the bridge ahead is out. If you see a bridge is out sign, that's not being overbearing. It's not being luxury. It's not being judgmental. They're trying to prevent you from flying off an unfinished bridge or a damaged bridge and injuring yourself. The Word of God is full of these warnings that are there so you and I don't injure ourselves. When you and I are called of God, when we are born again, God has called us by the Spirit, and we are called with a purpose. God calls you from death and sin to life in Christ, and as such, He expects you, and He expects me, to walk in the Spirit. He died and rose from the dead for you, as chapter 5 of this epistle says, so that you live for Him. As we recently emphasized on the air, He has reconciled you, so be reconciled unto His will. He gave you saving grace, so receive not His grace in vain, but rather labor in His cause. Or, as we just read, be separate from this world. The first thing that I want to do today in our broadcast is to go verse by verse through this passage— before returning to the concept of being unequally yoked and making a few relevant applications of it. First of all, verse 14, Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness, and what communion hath light with darkness? That's chapter 6 and verse 14 of Second Corinthians. We don't use the phrase yoked together often. It's not in our daily vocabulary. I recently conducted an after-school devotion with a group of middle school students, and 
this was a passage that I shared with them, and I asked the question, what does it mean to be yoked with someone? What is a yoke there? And not to anyone's surprise, they really had no idea as to what I was referring when I said yoked together. The reason for this isn't because the translation of the Bible that I'm reading is archaic, because if you consult all of the other more modern, more contemporary English translations, they mostly use the word yoke as well. The reason that we don't know what a yoke is is simply because we no longer live in an agricultural society. We don't plow a field. We don't have oxen. We don't have beasts of burden that go out and plow fields or pull carts because we drive in air-conditioned automobiles and we buy our food from Publix or Walmart or Kroger. We don't live in the world where yokes are commonly utilized anymore. So what does this mean, yoke together? Be not unequally yoked with an unbeliever. Well, a yoke is a piece of wood that connected to the neck of an ox, sometimes designed to accommodate two oxen, and it would allow them to bear a load. Perhaps they would pull a plow. You have references to that, not muzzling the mouth of the ox that treads out the corn in the book of Deuteronomy and also in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Or perhaps the oxen would pull something like a cart or a wagon. When I was in middle school, there was a game that we would play on the computer. It was a very simple two-dimensional game. The name of it was Oregon Trail, and I'm sure people in my age group are well familiar with that game. In that game, one of the first things that you see is a little two-dimensional ox pulling a cart, and that was supposed to be the cartoonish representation of the trek that you were about to make through the American frontier and wilderness. And if you played the game right, you could survive it and make it to where you were going. And if you played the game wrong, you wouldn't finish the journey. It would be game over for you. But things such as oxen were utilized in that particular game. I confess to you that that's probably the only experience that I have with oxen bearing a yoke. The game, the Oregon Trail that I played growing up. A yoke is what you put on an ox, simply put, and it pulls a plow or it pulls a cart. But this concept of a yoke as a teaching tool is found elsewhere in Scripture. In fact, it's not uncommon in Scripture. For instance, in the book of Acts chapter 15, Peter described salvation by works as a yoke of bondage that no one is able to bear. In Acts 15, certain Jews came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and they taught the brethren there, the Gentiles, that they needed to keep the law and to be circumcised in order to be saved. And the apostles had a great debate about that. There was much arguing about that dispute and dissension. And Peter stands up and he says that you're trying to put a yoke of bondage on the neck of the disciples that neither we nor our fathers were able to bear. But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved even as they. We're saved not by a yoke of bondage. We're not saved by works. We are saved by grace. And so salvation by works is an unbearable yoke. Yoke describes a burden, specifically the burden of earning one's salvation, which again is quite literally an impossibility. Jesus used this word in Matthew's gospel to describe discipleship. Those laboring and heavy laden also implying a yoke, come unto Jesus, and they find rest. His burden is easy. His yoke is light. 
It's not a heavy burden we bear as disciples of Christ. He gives us rest from our labors. He is literally a Sabbath to us, but he has commands for us as well, and that is symbolized by this yoke that he gives us to wear, work that he has called us to do. These commandments that he gives us are not grievous, but he does tell us if we love him to keep his commandments, and in following him, we actually have much assurance and a peace that passeth all understanding. But back to this concept of a yoke. A yoke is what enables an ox to bear a burden. And if you caught the reference, sometimes two oxen were teamed together. That's what Paul is going to use here as a metaphor to teach us a practical lesson about life. Paul says to not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. This means it's not fitting or wise for a believer and an unbeliever to partner up in things of substance. At least it's not wise for the believer. He goes on to ask a couple of rhetorical questions in this verse. What fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? Well, the answer to that question is none at all. There is no fellowship between righteousness and unrighteousness. And I would add, this starts at the top. God has no fellowship with that wicked one, the prince of darkness, or that old serpent, the devil. Sometimes you hear people explaining things in this world, such as sin and wickedness, and they will explain it in such a way as to make you think that because God is sovereign, he is somehow responsible for wickedness, or that he is the author of sin, and that wicked people do the wicked things that they do because he has ordained them in such a way to do it so that he is the root cause of that. But God is righteous, and righteousness has no fellowship with unrighteousness. God is not the author of sin, and any view that a Christian espouses— that lays sin at the feet of God as if God were the cause of that. That is an extreme view, and that view is to be rejected. We believe in the sovereignty of God. God is sovereign. God is in absolute control of this universe. But that does not mean that the fatalistic, deterministic idea that everything is prescripted from before the foundation of the world by God so that we are all puppets on a string, that is not biblical. In fact, to quote preachers and theologians of old, God does no damage to the liberty of the creature. And again, God is not the author of sin. God is not the author of sin and wickedness, and we know that because, well, righteousness and unrighteousness have no fellowship. God has no fellowship with that wicked one, that old serpent, the devil. And since God has no fellowship with that wicked one or his forces, God's people should have no fellowship with that wicked one, his forces, or his behaviors either. Another couple of contrasting things that Paul uses here to make this point in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 14 is light and darkness. Light and darkness are great terms to use as a word picture. For one, they're opposites. And also, I suppose in their base form, they're mutually exclusive. Now, in our observation of the universe, we know that we'll say that something is more light or more dark than something else. But if you take pure light, there is no darkness in it. And if you take pure darkness, there is no light in it. So light and darkness in their pure forms are mutually exclusive. Lastly, darkness is the absence of light. 
This is interesting in other ways because God is described as light. So putting this into application regarding the existence of good and evil, God is good and God is light. In fact, John describes him as complete light in whom is no darkness whatsoever. Evil is darkness in which there is no light. But what about darkness? What is darkness? It's actually the absence of light. So in thinking about good and evil, evil is the absence of good. Wickedness is the absence of God. Consider this from John chapter 1, in which John writes that light shines through the darkness and the darkness comprehended it not. This also explains total depravity. If before salvation we are void of God, then, before salvation, we are void of light. Therefore, all we are is darkness or evil. This is why when we are translated, we are translated from darkness into light at the new birth, as Colossians says. Before salvation, we are nothing but evil, we are nothing but darkness. After salvation, we have the light of Christ within us. We are translated from the powers of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son. So to answer Paul's question, what communion, what fellowship has righteousness with unrighteousness and light with darkness? Righteousness and unrighteousness, nor light and darkness, have any fellowship. Therefore, we should not have partnership with unbelievers either. Now, continuing on to verse 15, and what concord has Christ with Belial, or Belial, or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? Belial, or Belial, as some of us in the South like to pronounce it, is a transliteration of the Greek word here, and this is actually an Old Testament name for that wicked one. A wicked person in the Old Testament would often be called a son of Belial. One of the more notable examples of this was when Hannah was praying outside of the tabernacle, and Eli the priest thought that she was drunk because she was speaking with her mouth. Her mouth was moving, but she was not audibly speaking words, and she was not being as a daughter of Belial in that. She was not being publicly drunken at the temple or the tabernacle of God. This word Belial would be used a handful of times through the Old Testament, and it is a title for that wicked one. It's another name for the devil. A wicked person would often be called, then, a son of Belial, a daughter of Belial. And basically what that simply means is a child of that wicked one, not that Satan has biological offspring, nor does that mean that the wicked are born of Satan the way that the righteous are born of God. But as Jesus said, you're of your father the devil in John chapter 8, as John wrote concerning Cain, who slew his brother who was of that wicked one, Satan is the chief influence in their lives. He is the influence behind who they are and what they do. They follow his will in this world, and they don't belong to the Lord. It's said that they belong to that wicked one. So let's explore this thought here that Paul shares with us concerning Christ and his enemy Belial. If Christ, our Lord, hath no concord, no friendship, no partnership, no fellowship with 
Belial, then what sort of fellowship should we, as the people of Christ, have in terms of intimate yoking together with the people that belong to that wicked one? Well, we shouldn't have the closeness of friendship and fellowship with them that we have with people who belong to the Lord, people that worship Christ and follow Christ. That would be contrary to what God has called us to be. Now, please understand that what I'm espousing to today is not Phariseeism. I'm not telling you that, well, we're better than them. No, we're not. We are saved by grace from our sins, and except for the grace of God, we would be the exact same way. But what Paul has here is more in reference to the sorts of relationships like marriage, which I will speak about in a moment, or partnerships in the business world or behavior patterns. Paul isn't saying that we need to be a Pharisee. Remember that Jesus was also the friend of sinners. And so you and I would be wise to be kind and loving and compassionate to those who are not yet following Christ. We should be loving to them and merciful to them. Because if the Lord changes their heart, if the Lord quickens them, well, this example of kindness and love towards them that we have given could be used by the Lord to cause them to join up with us and walk with us if and when the Lord, through the Holy Spirit, quickens their heart and they come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no place in the Christian faith for a pharisaical attitude. We shouldn't look at other people with judgmental sneers, as it were, as if we're better than them, because we most certainly are not better than anyone. But again, at the same time, on the other hand, we have this exhortation, because Christ has no fellowship with Belial, because righteousness has no part with wickedness, because light and darkness cannot fellowship, we also should have a separation between us and the world around us. The rest of this chapter is a reiteration of this based on the fact that we are the temple of God as the Spirit dwells in us. And there's obviously a couple of applications of that that you could make. If the Holy Spirit lives in your heart, then your body is a temple of the Holy Ghost, and we should be mindful of the things that we do in our bodies. At the same time, collectively, we as the people of God meet together And as we meet together as people in whom the Spirit dwells, and we worship in spirit and in truth, the church, the assembly, is the house of God, the pillar and ground of the truth, the temple of God. The New Testament temple is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. We come together and we worship, and the Spirit is in us as the temple of God. So there's a couple of different applications of that. Paul's intent seems to be, you personally, your body is the temple of God, as the Spirit of God dwells within you. Further in this passage, Paul would cite Old Testament examples of the separate nature that he calls us to, that we are to be his people, we are to be separate, we are to be holy, we are to be sanctified. The word to the children of Israel, these statements were made that they are to come away from the nations around them, they are to be separate. A similar word to the word separate is the word holy. We are called to be a holy people. Holy can mean lifted up or exalted or separate. And an extension of that word holy, as far as the concept is concerned, is the word sanctified. We are sanctified. We are set apart for holy usage. So being separate, being sanctified, being holy, these are all 
connected concepts in Scripture. And so this is obviously a very crucial thing. So coming to our specific application part of today's message, to have no fellowship with darkness of this world, to not unequally yoke with an unbeliever, how do we apply this in our lives? How can we apply this to better understand Paul's meaning? Number one, and the most obvious way to apply this, is marriage. In fact, that's one of the most common applications of this passage among Christians— that we are not to marry an unbeliever. If you are a believer, the Word of God would prohibit you from marrying an unbeliever. And this is actually one of my pastoral rules. I will not conduct a wedding ceremony of a believer who is marrying an unbeliever. So let me give you some advice. If the person you are interested in is an unbeliever, you shouldn't marry them if you are a believer. Do not date people you cannot actually marry. You're setting yourself up or the other person up for heartbreak, and at minimum, you're wasting your time and theirs. But we are commanded not to yoke unequally with unbelievers, and a prime application of that is marriage. Number two, we shouldn't go into a business partnership with an unbeliever. To be clear, I'm not saying you cannot be employed in a company with a non-Christian CEO, nor am I saying that a Christian cannot have a non-Christian employee. What I am saying has reference to partnerships. You won't have the same ideals, the same convictions, and that will affect your handling of company business. Paul warns us here about that. Number three, speaking to partnerships. We often partner with the world in ways that we don't even realize. Hold on, because I am about to perhaps offend you. The level of blind devotion and unyielding faith that we have for certain political figures violates this principle. My devotion is to be only to Christ. If I find myself excusing the most wicked behavior of political figures or celebrities or sports figures that I follow in an almost blind cult-like devotion, I need to repent and walk away. And I say that. I speak as one who knows that was me at one point. Real Christianity is always an outsider perspective. We are always outsiders and in a two-party political system, maybe we should be the third group of people standing there watching and judging and guiding and leading. We are outsiders to the devotion of these characters. We are outsiders to the shady deal-making. We are to be outsiders to the allegiance to anything other than Christ, citizens of a foreign government, the kingdom of heaven. Let's make sure this election year that we're not partnering with Belial. If I can't trust a politician alone with my daughters, I probably shouldn't swear blind allegiance to them because they speak things that sound like things that I agree with, regardless of what party they belong to. And the last thought on this, if Christians put the same energy and devotion into attending their local church, giving for its ministries, praying and listening to their pastor preach as they do their favorite pundit, radio host, or politicians, I tell you that our churches would be a lot healthier. I know, I know. I've gone to meddling, so I'll return to the subject for today. Number four, how do we apply this unequal yoking and its prohibition in our lives? We can apply this to any lifestyle, any other lifestyle or behavior that isn't godly. We can be godly in the workplace, but my work needs to be wholesome. 
I can go out with friends, but I shouldn't go places or do things that bring a reproach upon the calls of Christ. You know, we're always yoked up to something. We're always bearing some sort of burden, some sort of work. Let's yoke up with good, faithful believers and start pulling this gospel plow, laboring for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Again, I'm Ben Winslet, thanking you for listening to Words of Grace today, inviting you to write and let me know that you've received the broadcast, and to tune in again next week at this time. Until then, may the Lord's richest blessings be yours, is my prayer. If you enjoy the messages you hear on Words of Grace, consider this your invitation to visit a Primitive Baptist Church in your community. An online directory is available at MarchToZion.com. Copies of this and other broadcasts are available for download on iTunes and on our website. And finally, Words of Grace is a listener-supported program. To contact us, address your correspondence to... Words of Grace Radio, 641 Moontown Road, Brownsboro, Alabama, 35741. Or visit us online at flintriverpbc.org.